Let's pray together this morning. Merciful Father, we thank you for the truths that we have already sung this morning and seen as they've been drawn from your word, your, your, the beauty of, of bringing together music and the truths of your word is, is a blending together that causes our hearts just to soar in joy for how great it is to be known by you. We ask you, God, that you would pour out more of your spirit by your grace on us today as we continue to seek to glorify you now through the the preaching and hearing of your word. Pray that you would be with me this morning as as I seek to to honor you and how I speak and present this text. And I would ask that you would give hearts and minds that are quickened in, in the body to hear what your word would say. May we be true to your text and that we would glorify you in every way possible, including how we, we, we seek to know you more through your word. And God, I know that as we're all here this morning, there are so many aspects of our lives that are so difficult and hard to, 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 to shut off or to, to tune out as we seek to, to know your word. But we would ask that you would give us grace for that too, that we would be clear of mind and ready to, to receive your word as the food that it is that, that feeds our, our starving souls and, and, and sustains us from week to week. So may your word move quickly and effectively this morning in all of us. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to continue looking at the book of Jonah. So if you have a Bible, you can, if you'd like to join me there now, we will look together at chapter 3 today. Uh, but before we do that, just briefly, because I'm not with you every single week, let me review with you what we've seen in chapters 1 and 2 to kind of catch us up with what we've seen so far in the book of Jonah. In chapter 1, we see that the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amati, uh, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. That's the command that Jonah hears from the Lord. As you remember, Jonah was a prophet in Israel who had already been prophesying, but now he has been called to a different nation, a nation that is not Israel or Judah, but to the Assyrians, and specifically the town of Nineveh. We see in verse 3 that the, the action of this whole book comes to a head with Jonah rising and fleeing to Tarshish by boat. And he says here that he was fleeing the presence of the Lord. And so we know the rest of chapter 1 is Jonah trying to run from this presence of the Lord and utterly failing and finding himself tossed overboard from this boat by some pagan mariners who are now followers of Yahweh. We saw in the end of verse 14 of chapter 1, Therefore they, that is the, the mariners, the, the men running the boat, they called out to the Lord. And that Lord, all caps, means Yahweh. They called out to God, Yahweh, by name, saying, O Yahweh, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood for you, Yahweh, have done as it pleased you. So they picked him up, and they hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from raging. Verse 16 of chapter 1, Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. So the end of chapter 1 is is some unlikely converts. Some people that were saved uh, by Yahweh through this, this prophet who is not following God's word and command directly. But in spite of himself, he sees people converted. We end up in verse 17 in all of chapter 2 in the belly of the great fish, which we saw the last time we were together. 
And what we see there is is another unlikely salvation, and I don't mean salvation in the sense that I would mean the mariners, as in someone who was not following Yahweh and who now is, but now we have a prophet who is a follower of Yahweh, who is not currently following Yahweh, and it is in the belly of this fish that we see Jonah is reoriented, turned back to his first love, back to God himself. And I wanted to clear that up because last time we were together, I wanted to make sure you didn't leave here thinking that that Jonah chapter 2 was about Jonah finally turning to Yahweh in a saving way. I, I don't mean to say that I don't believe the Lord calls prophets who are not followers of him. What I'm saying is he is a follower of Yahweh who wasn't currently following him. And so through his physical salvation from the sea and from the, the stomach of this fish, he is now turned back towards God. And that's where we pick it up today. Now, like a good uh, Bible teacher, I want to be like John and tell you where I want to get to before we get going here. And what I'd like us to, to leave here today thinking is that we are thankful followers of Christ, powered by His Holy Spirit, to call the nations to the throne of the Lamb. So let us glory in the truth that God first called us to Him as Father through His Son Jesus to be ambassadors. So that's where we're going. Let's see how we get there. Now, chapter 3 opens almost exactly like chapter 1 opens. If you look at verse 1 of chapter 3, it says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I will tell you. So that maybe hopefully sounds like, okay, I've heard this before, I think I get it. There's only some minor variations, things like the second time. So it's the second time the word of the Lord has come to Jonah, that makes sense. We don't see the son of Amadi because obviously we know who he is at this point. Uh, so we see some minor differences, but again, it's the same command. It's, it's go to Nineveh, this great city, and call out against it. So what we see again in, in verse 1 is that the word of the Lord has come to Jonah. So this is a command. The reason why Jonah was in all that trouble to begin with in chapter 1 is because he wasn't following the commands in the word of the Lord. So the Lord tells him to do something. He does the opposite. That's disobedience. So now, what we see in chapter 3 is that the author, Jonah, uh, spends great lengths here in the first four verses showing us the difference, how now he is being obedient. So if you look at verse three, uh, 2 and 3 of chapter 3, we see first it says, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. What does verse 3 say? So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, right? So it's like, this is the command, and now we're seeing right away that Jonah is being immediately obedient. So he arose, and he went according to the word of the Lord, according to the command of God. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breath. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. He called out, right? So again, that he was called to go to Nineveh and give a message. It says here that in verse 4, he called out and gave a message, and the message was, yet forty days in Nineveh, shall be overthrown. So that's the message. Forty days in this city, Nineveh, will be overthrown. Well, that word overthrown is the same word that is used to define what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. So it would be clear to um, the, the, those that hear the original language and, and to the Ninevites that this means destruction. This is utter devastation. And that's that's the message. And And, and it says here in chapter... 3 verse 3 that Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days journey in breadth. That's big, okay? So Matthew Henry describes it this way. The greatness of Nineveh consisted chiefly in the extent of it. 
It was much larger than Babylon. It was 150 furlongs long. Now, he'll explain what a furlong is in just a minute. But 150 furlongs long and 90 furlongs broad, 480 furlongs in compass, so overall size. The walls were 100 feet high and so thick, three chariots might ride side by side around them. And it was said that they had 1,500 towers and each of them were 200 feet high. It says in Jonah that it would be a three days journey for the compass of the walls. So some would say 80, 480 furlongs, which allowing eight furlongs to a mile makes it 60 miles. So it's 60 miles in size. And they reckon that the average footman would journey 20 miles a day on foot. So that's 20, you know, 60 divided by 20 is three. So three days to walk 60 miles. So lest you think Jonah was being a baby about his commission, that's pretty daunting. I mean, that's big. Three chariots? I mean, that's how wide do you even think that is for, for a, a wall that size? So it's imposing. It's big. There's a lot of people. There's a lot of war. There's a lot there. And the message might not be super popular. So this is a very big city. But Jonah's message was big, too. And so it's short, it's sweet, and it's to the point. It's the end of verse 4. Yet 40 days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, we don't know for sure if he said more. We don't know if those are the only words he said, but but rest assured, that's the gist of what Jonah was saying to the people of Nineveh. And also notice how how far he didn't get or did get into the the city. In verse 4 at the beginning, it says, Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey. So he's not halfway in. He's not two-thirds of the way in. He is one-third of these 20 miles into a 60-mile jaunt giving this message, and things are starting to happen. And what's interesting is this section ends with a complete reversal of the beginning of the book, doesn't it? So everything is going according to plan now, but that was the plan all along, wasn't it? God's sovereign plan is coming to pass the exact way He has always wanted it to. Because the question is, is all of this random? And hopefully you would say, no, not at all. See, God has worked his plans through the unwilling participant Jonah exactly how he saw fit. God allowed all of the tomfoolery of chapter 1 to lead him into the belly of chapter 2 to reorient his heart to send him out to do chapter 3. God's will is being done. And it all is leading to this call at the end of verse 4, this yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. He's not too far in. And he doesn't say much, but what ends up happening? Well, we see that the pagans respond, and it is a good response. Look with me at verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. Now, there's a lot going on there. So first, they take this skeleton of a message. I mean, it's almost nothing. Forty days, and you will be destroyed. That's, That's the message. And they hear it, and they don't even hear it just from Jonah, but they recognize that it is from God. They look past the messenger to the message and realize that this message is from God himself. So it obviously is going to happen. They understand it. And we also see that it, the response is widespread. At the end of verse 5 it says, From the greatest of them to the least of them believed. God. So now we see that it, it crosses all types of people, all types of places. Though he's only 20 miles in, the whole city is getting this message. And they're believing it. And they're saying, this messenger is coming from the God that can do something serious. We believe it. 
And so what do they do? They, it says in the middle of verse 5, they called for a fast and put on sackcloth. Now, what is a fat, what is, what is sackcloth? What does that mean? Well, this is from Baker who writes on this section. He says, as a consequence of trusting God, they declared a fast and put on sackcloth. This was a common means in the ancient world of expressing grief, humility, and penitence, which are the hallmarks of true repentance. The sackcloth used was a thick, coarse cloth, normally made from goat's hair, to where it symbolized the rejection of earthly comforts and pleasures. The response of the Ninevites was unanimous from the greatest to the least. No class or section of Ninevites socially felt exempt from the need to humble itself before God. So that's what we're dealing with here. We're dealing with widespread humility and true repentance of the message of your city will be destroyed. And don't let the the sackcloth confuse you. We all cultures show grief, right? Think about at a funeral you might see somebody dressed in black. Have you ever seen somebody who's downcast? Maybe they're they're not clean shaven. They've allowed their their, their face to be to grow hair. Um, it's just not that uncommon. Fasting, maybe you've heard someone say, I'm so distraught that I, I've lost my appetite. So we, we understand the ideas here that culturally we all express grief different ways. And so what the author, what Jonah is showing us is that this is true grief leading to tangible action in response to true repentance. Now we see that this greatest to least of them is also makes its way to the king. Look with me at verses 6 and 7. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removing his robe, covering himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published it throughout Nineveh. So we see that that the, the king does five things. First, he arises from his throne, the idea of giving up his sovereignty, realizing that there's a new sheriff in town. There's someone more sovereign than he. We see that he removes his Robe, right? He's, he's, he's taking off what distinguishes him from his people and he becomes like his people. And then he follows in the same ritualistic showing of, of covering himself with a sackcloth and sitting in ashes. And again, sitting in ashes and covered in sackcloth. It's this idea of, of visibly showing what is going on in the heart, giving up creature comforts. It's even more poignant when you think about the fact that he is the king and most kings um, are unwilling to give up their sovereignty, give up the fact that they don't control everything. So this this is true repentance. This is serious response to a serious message. And he does the one thing that no one else can do, which is issue a proclamation throughout the land. And I think this sounds a lot like what Psalm 72 says. You don't have to turn there, but let me read you what it says. Psalm 72, 11 through 13 says, May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls the poor man. And him who has no helper, he has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. So we see a small picture in the people of, of, of Nineveh that looks like what the author of Psalm 72 is saying. here: that, that, that kings fall down, kings and nations, different nations, nations other than Israel will serve him. Now, all this... Adds now, now the king he adds something to the fast that is a little peculiar. Look with me at the end of verse seven and eight. It says, "Let neither." No, first of all, it says, "By decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. 
Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. So the first thing we see here is that, one, the king and the nobles decree it, right? You see that right there at the beginning of the decree, by the decree of the king and his nobles. Again, this idea is that the message is far-reaching, the repentance is through all groups of people. It's not even just the people that heard the message directly from Jonah and the king, but also this class of of nobility that is also saying, we need to, to do this. And then we see, this is the odd part, not only man, but beast, herd, and flock. He says that they shouldn't taste anything, including food and water, which makes the, the fast that much more intense by, by taking away the water. But he, he says to put sackcloth on the animals, which sounds comical, doesn't it? Like, what in the world is putting goat's hair on a goat going to do? He's already living in it. Like, that's not like a big... It's odd, and it is funny, but I also see it as sad. And here's why I would say that. This people has no promises. This people has no scripture. This people has, they're stabbing in the dark, trying to figure out, what do we do? How, how do we respond to this God? They don't have the promises of Israel. No, Jonah didn't, wasn't hoofing the Torah with him all the way you know, out here. They didn't have the book of the law. They had nothing. They had five Hebrew words. That's what they had. That's what they responded to. And so, just imagine it, that they don't know what to do, and yet, so they're, they're throwing sackcloth and stuff on animals, and no one's eating anything, but the one thing they get is they get that they have a need. And it says they, at the end of verse 8, they called out mightily to God. Call out mightily to God. They're saying, we don't know what to do, but help us. We don't, God, we might, we're calling out with all of our strength. We don't know what to do. That it's understandable that their actions are just not right. And you know what? Here's what's interesting as well, I think, to me, is though they don't understand all of who God is, they definitely see a connection between their condemnation and the way they're acting. Look with me at, at it's in the middle of verse 9. It says, Let everyone turn from his evil ways and from the violence that is in his hands. So they don't have the word of God. They don't know how to properly worship God. And yet, deep in their bones, they're like, we're, we're living life wrong. We're doing it wrong. It sounds a lot to me like Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. If you'd like to turn with me there, it's verses 12 through 16. Romans 2 verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearer of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law... So Gentiles, again, that's like the the Ninevites. So for when Ninevites who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires... They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse, or even excuse them. And then verse 16 says, On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. So we see, tucked away in Romans chapter 2, some explanation as to what's going on here. 
Deep in the hearts of the Ninevites, they realized when they were confronted with condemnation that the way they were living was contrary to what this God would require. And back in chapter 3 of Jonah, verse 9 ends with the final thing that they they say in this decree, verse 9 of of chapter 3. Who knows? Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. So here's what they know. What they don't know is, will God do anything? They're not so arrogant as to think that anything that they're doing right now will cause God to change. Because remember, the message is basically, in 40 days you will be destroyed. No, if you repent, he will relent. No, God, God will allow this to go away if you, if you cover yourself. Nothing. They're just shooting in the dark. Jonah did not say, if you change your ways, something better will happen. He doesn't say any of that. He says, in 40 days, you're done. End of discussion. And it works them up and causes such true repentance that they're saying, who knows? Who knows? Maybe, just maybe, God will turn. So they don't know if he will, but they, they also, just like they know that they've sinned in their hearts, they're realizing somewhere deep down that God could do it if he wanted to. He might turn and relent. Who knows? But he might. So they understand that he has the ability to both destroy them and give them a stay of execution. He knows. They, 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 they just have this amazing working knowledge of this God they've so sparsely heard about. So they don't know what he'll do, but they know he's capable of doing whatever he wants. And they also realize that his anger is fierce and that the answer for what will happen is perish, death. So they know what's up. They know the deal. They know what's on the docket in 40 days. What's, What's great is that God can do all of that. God can relent. God can turn away. God can stay his hand if he wants to, but does he? Well, that's what we see in verse 10, chapter 3. We see God's response to what they've done. Verse 10 says, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he would not do it. So we see that God saw them. God saw what they did. We also see that they had turned, right? They had turned away from their evil way. So not so their, their repentance had some teeth. It wasn't just, I am sad about what I've done, but, but their repentance was a turning and changing of their actions. And God sees this. So what does God do? He relents. Some of your versions say he repented, or some modern translations go with um, this idea that uh, God changed his mind. I'm going to be straight with you. I don't like either. God does not repent and God does not change his mind. Theologically speaking, Numbers 22.19 said, God is not man. I'm sorry. We said again so you know where I got it. Numbers 23.19. God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. He has said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? God does not change his mind. God also does, does not repent. Now, I understand why some of your versions might say repent. The idea is that he is just turning from an action that he's already doing. The problem for most of us as New Testament Christians is when we hear repent, it is pregnant with this idea of repenting from sin. So if you have a version that says repent, just know he's not repenting from something evil. He is changing direction because he can. And so that's the difference there. I just want you to know that. The, the definition of relent is to soften and temper, to become more mild and tender, 
to feel compassion, to abandon or mitigate a harsh intention or cruel treatment. So I I like the word relent because he's by rights he can do whatever he wants. He is choosing by by the promise and, and nature of his character to do something other than what he said. This comes directly in line with what we've seen earlier about how God interacts with us and our responsibility. We saw it in Sunday school this morning talking about the responsibility between what Joshua has to do and what God promised. So we're seeing here that that God interacts with us in terms that we understand. So the phrase is given to us by the author, Jonah, in human terms to help us understand God's divine nature. Common in biblical narratives is to speak to us from a human perspective, to see what actually is. But the whole counsel of God reveals to us who God is in fullness. So God is compassion. God is mercy. God is grace. And God is justice. And God is wrath. And he has the right to do any of those things. And so here, he did both. He told them what he was going to do. He gave them a message of warning. But here's the thing. If you have the ability to strike someone down, you don't have to tell them you have the ability to strike someone down. You can just do it. So part of the reason why he gave the message is because part of God's plan was for them to repent. So God didn't change his mind because he doesn't have to. He knows the end from the beginning. But again, this text is not about God's all-knowingness. It is about His mercy. God is merciful. And He is showing us through Jonah chapter 3 that He is willing to relent if we repent. And also, He's not even contradicting what He has said. He's talked about this before. Turn with me to Jeremiah 18. God is not acting inconsistently. He is acting directly in line with his own word and what he has said. Jeremiah 18. Verses 7 and 8. Jeremiah 18, verse 7, says this. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, And if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do it. So God is not even being inconsistent. He is saying, I've already said in Jeremiah 18 that if any nation, any not just Israel, but if any nation would turn and repent from their evil way and turn from doing evil, I will relent from the disaster. So he's not doing anything different than who he already said that he was. Now, this is how the chapter ends, this this great picture of repentance and a change in direction. Now, a couple of things to say that we just need to get, just so we're clear. The Ninevites never became Yahweh followers. There's no record in the Bible or elsewhere that they ever devoted themselves to God at any at any length of time, right? So, and what's interesting also to us is that this is the people that will eventually come and be the people that take Israel into captivity. But again, the message here is we see another group of unlikely converts. We just keep seeing unlikely salvation and unlikely conversion throughout this whole message. Again, Jonah is both the worst and the best prophet you've ever seen. He, For the whole first half of the book, he's not doing anything right, and yet people keep turning to the Lord. And now he comes here, gives a really sparse message, and it lights the town on fire. And they turn, and they relent, and God relents because they did what they did. Now, 
What can we learn from a text like this? And as you can imagine, there's, there's a lot that we can take away from it. And I want, I want to give you a few things to think about. First of all, one of the ones that, that helps us understand why the book was written. And remember, Jonah is a prophet. And his book is not just a fun story. It's a prophecy written to the northern tribes of Israel. And God in his providence is showing that the nation that would come and take the northern tribes of Israel away by force and into an early exile is the same nation that repented and turned when called to by Jonah. What an utterly sad thing that the people of God, the people who had the promises of God, the knowledge of God, who knew who God was, never repented. The northern kingdoms never repented and were walked into exile. This pagan nation hears five Hebrew words and turns. That is a direct call from Jonah to the people of Israel saying, if you will repent, if you will turn, you too can be saved. And they don't do it. And now we think about Jonah throughout all of Israel's history in the exile as they're sitting there away from home realizing, if only would have been like the Nineveh, if we only would have been like the people that took us into captivity that one time, maybe we could have been relented. We could have kept our land. And then we see in Luke chapter 11, you don't have to turn there, but Luke chapter 11, we see that, that Jonah is used as well in that, that section. So we read it last time we were together when we looked at the, the story of Jonah being in the belly of the fish because Jesus uses that as a, a reference to his three days in the tomb. But later on in chapter 11, verse 32, it says this, The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So Jesus, on top of showing that the three days in the belly of the fish is the sign of Jonah that that we should also see as the sign of his three days in the tomb, he's also saying this generation will be doubly condemned because they know the story of Jonah. And they've seen that these pagan Ninevites repented at the preaching of Jonah. And yet there's a better preacher here now in Christ Jesus. So the the people of of Israel never got it. They didn't get the original message from Jonah. They didn't get it in the exile. And they don't get it when the Pharisees and the people are sitting in front of Jesus. But we get it. If God has opened your eyes to these truths. Because that's the other message of Jonah. As God's New Testament people, let us just slow down and be thankful that God has always been willing to save those who are not ethnically Jewish. And that's, that's a good word for us. Because, to my knowledge, no one in here is ethnically Jewish. But even if you are, the point remains. God saves those who turn to him. So we can rest in that fact and trust that God, the God who was faithful to this pagan nation is faithful to all who would turn to him. And as believers, we, we've also been given the message. Just like Jonah was given the command, the word of the Lord, to go speak to the nation of of Nineveh, to the Assyrians at the the town of Nineveh, we too have been commissioned to take the message of Jesus Christ to the nations. That's Matthew 28, 18 through 20, often called the Great Commission. We've been called to take, go to the nations, teaching all that Jesus has said and baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we have a commissioning like Jonah to take God's word to the nations. And so we have to think of a couple things. First, it's a sin 
not to follow the Great Commission, just like it was a sin for Jonah to turn away from the word of the Lord. But the good news is, is just like Jonah, God empowers us to do the work. Just like God revealed himself to Jonah in the belly of the fish, God saves us and empowers us and shows us our great need for salvation and how great our salvation is again and again to equip us to be able to go to the nations. And so that would cause us to pause and ask ourselves, have we ever put our trust in Christ? Because just like the Ninevites who knew deep in their bones once they were confronted with their sin that they were sinners in need of something outside of themselves, we too are in the same situation. Deep in our bones, we understand through our conscience, through the fact that the Word of God, the law of God is written on our hearts, we know that we have transgressed against a holy God. And if that is you this morning and you're, and you're as terrified as the, as the Ninevites were, rightly so. Because the end for all who would not put their trust in Christ is to perish and to spend eternity in hell. But the good news, the great news of salvation is that Jesus Christ came, lived a perfect life, and and put his life on the line for ours on a cross, pouring out his blood for us as an atonement, as a payment for sin. And all who would put their trust in in the completed work of Christ Jesus will be saved. So that as you turn to the Lord, repent as the Ninevites did, and turn to God through Christ. And even today, this day, you can be saved. And now as we, as we think about, what's unique about this text is it feels a little bit like marching orders, um, in, that, in that we can really see a direct line between Jonah's call to go to the Ninevites and our call through the Great Commission. So remember this, our culture looks a lot like Nineveh. Our culture does not know God or his commands. Maybe... Fifty years ago, people had a, a passing knowledge of, of God's word. But I'll tell you this. It's a wild story. I just thought of this this week. I had a friend who moved here from California to play baseball for Morningside. This was 15, almost 20 years ago. And he became a believer in Christ. And we were talking. He did not know the story of Noah before he came to, to saving faith in Christ. Can you imagine somebody growing up to be 19 years old and never hearing the story of Noah? I take for granted so much of how much people just kind of have a passing understanding of what the Bible says. This guy didn't know Noah. I mean, that's a big one. I mean, I get it if you don't know, like, you know, the lady with the tent peg. I mean, there's a lot of stuff you might not know. I get that. But Noah? I mean, come on. So, that, but that's the world we're living in. That's the world Noah went, or, uh, that's the world Jonah went to. That's the city of Jonah. And that's what we deal with today. Our people do not have, the people of this nation do not know um, the, the word of God. And I say that because we're not just talking about being sent to the nations as in not America. There's a place for missions, and if any of you are called to that, God bless you, we will support you, and, and pray you all the way to whatever nation that also doesn't know the word of God. All I am saying is that we're not off the hook if we're not called to foreign missions, because it's, the mission is getting pretty foreign in America. That's all I'm saying. Your co-workers, your neighbors might not know what you think they know about this great God. But the good news is, Romans 2, they know deep in their heart that something isn't right, and we have the only message that answers that. So we will be countercultural, and that's okay. And courage is needed to make the message known, but the good news is, as I've already said, is that God empowers us to give that message. So as I said at the beginning, we'll close with this. Let us be thankful followers of Christ powered by his Holy Spirit, to call the nations to the throne of the Lamb. Let us first glory that he called us 
to him as Father, through his Son, Jesus Christ, that we may, in love, be his ambassadors. Let's pray. Oh, Father, your name is so great, and your, your word pierces so directly that, that even a little bit of it can cause nations to change their direction. Just as five Hebrew words changed the entire city of Nineveh, so can one sentence from your word change our hearts. And may that be true today, God. I would ask that if anyone here who has heard the power of your word is, is wrestling with what to do, that you would open their eyes to see that this word is so good, your message is so great, we have such a need that only you can fill. I pray that you would stir their hearts to that. And I pray you would remind us as believers, first and foremost, the beauty of what great of salvation you've given us. Your salvation has saved us from condemnation, from an eternity apart from you, and you've saved us to, to know you today. Eternal life is just knowing you and the Father, and we can have eternal life today through the knowing of your word and through, the, through prayer and through meeting you in, at times like this. So God, stir our hearts for the beauty of your salvation and stir our feet to take this great message to the, to the nations, the worlds, the peoples that, that need so desperately the message that we so greatly have received. Glory be your name this morning, God. Thank you for Jonah 3 and showing us that you've always been in the nation-saving business. And you're the one that changes hearts. And we can just go along for the ride with the, with the great grace that you give for the great glory you deserve. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.